In about AD 57, Paul wrote to uh, the Roman church, a church of uh, Gentile and Jewish Christians, begins his letter to the Romans by declaring the good news, Jesus the Messiah is Lord of the world. This good news of Jesus reveals God's righteousness or God's covenant faithfulness. God is intent on putting things right, the world right. And good thing, our world desperately needs to be put right. The wrath of God, Paul says, has been revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. Regardless of national or ethnic identity, humanity is without excuse. God will bring final judgment against all through Jesus Christ. But what about the Jews? I mean, doesn't the the Bible tell us that they have a favored status? That's where we pick up our reading for today. Before we read, beginning uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, let's pray together. Lord God, as we hear your word, may we be convicted and may our hearts, may our hearts be renewed so that we will be your people bringing honor and glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Romans 2 verse 17, page 1749, 2 verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person's not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person's a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise does not come from others, but from God. Virginia Stem Owens, a professor of English and literature, once taught a course at a major secular university. One of the assignments that she gave her students was to read the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the students had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount, and very few of her students had any acquaintance with it at all. So they read it. And they absolutely hated it. This is absolutely ridiculous, wrote one student. Nobody can be like that. Uh, Another student wrote, I didn't like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect. And no one is. Owens listened to their responses. And then she said, Aren't these the kind of people that 
you want around you? Don't you want people who are so loving they don't resent? So generous they're always grateful? There was only silence. I think what Virginia Stem Owens discovered is that it's easy to hold other people to a standard we cannot live up to ourselves. The very things we demand of other people can be the things we don't expect of ourselves. Paul put it this way. Those who boast in the law law, dishonor God when they break the law. The people of Israel had a favored status, and they failed. Paul challenges the notion that the blessing God brought to Israel can in itself rescue them from God's judgment. Paul begins, Now if you call yourself a Jew, many Jews believed that they were called to be the light of the world. God chose Israel and gave them the light to be a shining example of virtue to the rest of the world. Paul's series of if statements in verses 17 to 20 reveal the privileges Jews enjoyed. These weren't just so-called bragging rights. If we want to understand the special status Israel rightfully had, we must realize their privilege. They possess the name Jew. If you call yourself a Jew, it's a general privilege. At first, it referred to those who were descendants of the region, the geographic area of Judah. But in time, this name was applied to all Israelite people especially after the exile. To be a Jew was, for Jews, a point of pride. I suppose it's kind of like to be Dutch is a point of pride for those who are Dutch. If you rely on the law, says Paul, they were people of the Torah, the law of Moses. The Jews were privileged to be the only people entrusted with this record of God's character and will. The law was their hope for deliverance from God's judgment. If you boast in God, the NIV says brag, boast might be a better word. If you boast in God, their boast wasn't in themselves. Their boast was in their relationship to God. Paul might have in mind here Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts about boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. The Jews know God and God's desire. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed in the law, they had mastery of the law. They could quote it. They could cross-reference it. They could go deep into the details of its meaning. They were able to discern right from wrong. They could make correct ethical decisions and they could see the wrong choices that others made. This gave Jews a sense of pleasing God, superior in this regard to all others. And then Paul concludes with four images of Jewish vocation. If you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, the Jews had so much that they could celebrate. 
But for all this favor, they failed. Israel failed to live up to the special relationship they had with God. Their Jewishness wasn't the problem. The fact that they had the law wasn't a problem. The problem was moralism. They felt that their status and their possession of the law made them superior to others. Pastor Tim Keller notes, There's not much difference between the words morality and moralism, but there's an eternal world of difference between making a good thing, morality, into your God, moralism. Moralism's the religion of comparing yourself to others and concluding you're a lot more decent than other people. Back in the 1970s, a best-selling book came out, I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was meant to counteract what the author thought was a hardwired sense of disapproval which we carry around with us from childhood. Thing is, it didn't take long for others to take issue with the I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay ethos. What about the blood of innocence? What about things like genocide and terrorism? There's all this awful stuff in the world. One author countered that it was narcissism to claim that everyone's okay. And so she wrote a book entitled, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. But narcissism doesn't tell the whole truth about our world. That same author noted another popular trend. In this case, she said, people say, yes, indeed, there is evil out there. But it led some people to conclude, I'm okay, and the rest of you are no way okay. This is moralism. The moral self-righteousness harshly judges others as stupid or delusional or weak. The other person is shifty or a do-nothing. And whatever they do is a farce or a sham. All because they aren't like you. They fail to recognize your elite moral status. So Paul addresses this Jewish moralism. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Certain Jewish people might consider themselves the light of the world, but they failed to take into account their own situation. They failed to recognize how desperate the situation was. They thought they were okay. Perhaps this story helps us get a little bit of perspective on being okay. There was a teacher and his family, and they were on a boat excursion in Asia. The teacher, his wife and grandson, and the boatman, who didn't know much English, were on the boat. On their way back from the excursion, as they were nearing shore, another boat bumped into them. It was a hard bump, hard enough that water splashed up and over them, getting everyone wet up to their knees. Suddenly, the boatman became very agitated. Uh, the teacher said, it was all right. It was only water. We're okay. Don't get upset, said the teacher. We're okay. Still, the, the boatman was quite agitated. The, the teacher felt the, the boatman had some kind of an ego problem. We're okay, he repeated. But the boatman didn't settle down. And as they neared the dock, the boatman got really agitated. Don't worry, repeated the teacher. Really, we're all okay, 
The boatman looked up and said, You not okay? I not okay. And he pushed them out of the boat and onto the dock. And then the boatman himself jumped onto the dock. And suddenly the boat was sucked down into the water. See, it turned out there had been a hole in the hull. The boatman had seen it. The teacher had not seen it. And if they had stayed in the boat one second longer, they would have all gone down with the boat. That's the message. Paul has for the Jews. It's the message of the Bible. I'm not okay. You're not okay. Not moralism, which stands in superior position, but an honest appraisal of failure before God. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Paul's charge against fellow Jews, really a charge against his former self, is that what the prophet said about Israel had come true. They had failed. Devastation and exile resulted because they had not practiced what they preached. But worse than their failure, They had blasphemed the name of God. Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, echoes Ezekiel 36. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Nations derided God because of Israel. Israel had failed in her task that God had set before her. Not that everybody in the nation of Israel stole or committed adultery or robbed temples, but if some did these things, then they could not boast that as a nation they were the light of the world. As a nation, they did not reveal the truth of God's law to the rest of humanity. This condition of sinfulness in Israel confirmed the prophet's charge. When the nations look at you and your behavior, they curse your God. We as Christians can be no different. I mean, suppose we paraphrase these verses and insert Christian for Jew. We can fall prey to a form of Christian moralism when we boast about ourselves by pointing out the sin of the other. You call yourself a Christian and you're right with God because you were baptized when you were a baby and took a children at communion class and made profession of faith when you graduated from high school. You remember you had strong feelings for God, convinced that you were converted. Look, I mean, you sing heartfelt songs of worship. You read your Bible almost every day. You've taken classes in the catechism, so you know the answers to many, many questions of faith. Why, you even took Mr. Hooksima's Bible classes at Ripon Christian. You know everything there is to know about election and predestination. Are all these good things? Yeah, absolutely. Did they make you superior? Not at all. In fact, if those good things don't find any traction in your life, your neighbors will only laugh at how two-faced you are. Their conclusion will be, so what? They will disbelieve God because of your behavior. If others scoff at God and Christianity, it could be we brought it on ourselves. Just like Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. They were given God's law, the holy law of the one true God, but they failed to live it. Nations mocked, 
And God was dishonored because of that. There's only one way forward. Paul points to the other important identifier of Jews. Besides the law, circumcision was the most important distinguishing mark of Jewishness. Paul points to circumcision and God's desire for a renewed heart. A person's not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Circumcision's values contingent on obedience. Observe the law, and circumcision has value. Break the law, and circumcision is meaningless. Now here's the deal with with circumcision. When God entered a relationship with Abraham, God declared he wanted a personal, intimate, covenant relationship with Abraham and Sarah. God made a promise to be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you're to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Abraham represented humanity's side of the covenant. His commitment to the covenant relationship was to be sealed with this sign of circumcision. Circumcision's like baptism. Circumcision's a, a sign of being in covenant relationship with God. Baptism is a sign of being in Christ in his church. But why circumcision? I mean, I can imagine Abraham's response. Circumcision? Really, God? That's the sign I get? You give Noah a rainbow? I get circumcision? But there is a reason why circumcision. In those days, you didn't have a contract to sign. The only way to bind yourself was to act out a curse. For example, when a person entered into a contract with another person, they might pick up some sand and and they might drizzle it on their head and they might say, if I don't do everything I'm saying I will do today, if I disobey this covenant we're making, I just made with you, may I be like dust. Now here's how the story of the covenant between Abraham and God unfolds. Before God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, God acts out a curse of his own. When God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many, Abraham wanted to know how he could count on this. Abraham wanted to know how God was going to be true to his word. So God told him, bring me some animals. And so Abraham took the animals And then he cut them in half, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. And then to confirm his promise to Abraham, God passed between. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be cut off if he, God, did not keep his word. In the same way, circumcision is a sign. Abraham, representative of the nation to be, was acknowledging that if the nation would disobey, they would be cut off. 
just like the sign of circumcision. And it demands obedience. I mean, circumcision, one of the key identifiers of the Jewish people, was a big deal. Not for the sake of the ritual. No, it mattered for the sake of obedience. That's why Paul says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you have not been circumcised. Break the law, even if you are circumcised, and your standing before God comes in effect as if you're an uncircumcised Gentile, an uncircumcised member of the nations at large. But more, Paul makes an even more startling conclusion. Even if someone isn't circumcised, like a Gentile, like one of those from the nations at large, but they keep the law, it is as if they were circumcised. The only way that this can happen, according to Paul, is not because the Gentile makes some kind of a super special moral effort. Rather, it's because such a person has God's law written on their hearts by the Spirit. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Paul, in line with the prophecies from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and true to the experience of the early Christians, believes that the covenant has been renewed in Jesus the Messiah. It's a new day, a new age of the Spirit. So the outward sign doesn't identify God's people. Circumcision is more than just outward and physical. Truth is, all that circumcision represents can be present without the sign. N.T. Wright concludes, when you find the real thing in a package with a different label, you should call the real thing by the right name, even if it comes from somewhere else. Paul takes the holy and wonderful word Jew itself and declares that when God works by the Spirit in a Gentile heart to produce the true fulfillment of the law, that Gentile is to be called Jew, even though he or she was not born into a Jewish family. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It's God's work in people's hearts by God's Spirit to renew the covenant in people's actions. What does this mean for us? Well, think of the ways that we identify ourselves. Sometimes we put faith in church membership, belonging to a people of God. We can trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And that's just dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy subscribes to all the basic doctrines of the Bible, but doesn't live them out. Again, imagine a paraphrase of Romans 2, 25 to 29. So what if you've been baptized and made profession of faith? So what if you can claim to be a member of Emmanuel Church? This only counts for anything if there's been a real change in your life. If your heart has been affected. You're not a Christian if you're only a Christian in name. Real Christianity is not about having confidence in external signs. No, a Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is an inner baptism. When you are a heart member of God's people, then you are truly a Christian. And remember, this is a supernatural work of the Spirit, not a human work. It's supernatural. 
Because it is Jesus, the Messiah, who was cut off on the cross. We failed to obey. He was cut off. See, Paul doesn't mention Jesus in this passage. But by his action, by Jesus' action, we're brought into a new relationship with God. Paul will get to that. See, we can't boast because of our status as church members. We can't boast because we've been baptized or made profession of faith. Or because we studied the catechism or memorized Bible verses. We have only one boast. By the Spirit of Jesus, our hearts are circumcised. By his spirit, he writes God's law on our hearts. By his spirit, this spirit of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he makes our obedience fresh and vibrant. Let's pray together. Well, God, we thank you for Jesus Christ for his faithfulness. And we thank you for his spirit poured out upon us so that our hearts are renewed. We thank you that by his spirit, we can be your people, renewed people, people of a renewed heart. Thank you for that. And may all of our renewal find expression in the lives that we live for you. Amen.